0: So at 5:30 this morning, I wake up to Katie saying, "Hey, I need you to hold Keely for a little bit." And that's normal. So I'm holding her, and she says, "Hey, would you want to? Are you going to go ahead and wake up? It's Sunday. Or are you going to go back to sleep, knowing that she will probably wake up again in a couple hours?" And I said, "I, I don't know yet. I'm just—I was worn out." So I pick up my phone just to kind of see what time it is, but also just kind of figure out what's going on. And I usually hold her for about 10 minutes, and I got to stay awake. And I see a text message from Tony Foreman who says, hey, I am sick. I need you to step up this morning. (laughs) So Tony's at home this morning. Just be praying for him. He's doing all right, but just not feeling good and not feeling like himself. Just be praying for Tony. So he gave me the keys to the kingdom today. So you're stuck with me. If you want to leave, the doors are... No, I'm just kidding, don't leave. But fall is in the air. Fall is in the air. The the air is getting colder. The leaves are falling. People are wearing more and more flannel. Uh, Everything smells like pumpkin spice. Right? You, you know what I'm talking about. It's a great se- I love this season. It's an amazing season. You know, football games on Friday night, football games on Saturday, all day Saturday. Uh, for those of you who lost yesterday, I'm sorry, Joe. Uh, but the rest of you, I'm, I'm excited for your, your wins. It's, you know, congratulations to you. But it's a great season. The rest of us who are holy are watching postseason baseball. I mean, the World Series starts on Tuesday. There are some casual fans who really come alive for their team right about now. No, don't go Braves. Anyways, but it's a great season. It's it's my favorite time of year. I love this season. There's another thing that is going on right now that captivates many of you all's minds. It creates your, uh, a lot of it stirs your affections. It captivates your imaginations. I've never understood it. I, I really don't get it, but it started two days ago. Two days ago, Hallmark started showing Christmas movies. I know some of you all love the Hallmark Christmas movies. My personal favorite, my personal favorite Hallmark Christmas movie is the one where the big city girl who has no time for her family or for friends or relationships gets stranded in some small town away from her family at Christmas. But this one really nice family who owns this really nice mom and pop shop in town invites them over for dinner and she falls in love with the the one bachelor left in that city. And then with 2 minutes left in the entire movie, they profess their love. They kiss. The credits roll and we all cry. Is that, that is everyone. <laughs> That's every one of them. You caught that. Okay. But love stories captivate us. We love love stories. I mean, we, we, whether, it's, whether it's Hallmark or real life, when you meet a young couple who's newly married or newly engaged, you're like, hey, how'd you all meet? You just want to know their story of how they fell in love. Or maybe you're like, I don't necessarily do that. But some of you all scroll on Facebook just looking for those love stories. You want to see the engagement story. You want to see the new wedding. You want to see where they said yes to the dress. You want to see all this different stuff about how they fell in love. Some of the guys in the room are like, oh, that's not me. You fellows in the room, listen. Let me give you an example. Spoiler alert for some of you. Avengers Endgame. Iron Man snaps his fingers. Pepper says, it's okay, you can rest now. You all cried, right? You cried. You didn't? You Okay, some of you all cry when they lift the national championship, but you don't cry there and that. I don't understand it. We love these stories of these great gestures, these big love stories of all these different things of... Just a beautiful story, of pursuit. Today I want to share a story. Just I want to talk about this idea of, because in a moment we're going to have communion together. I just want to talk about this love story. And maybe you've heard me share this before, whether you've been to Emmaus or with our youth. My favorite, second favorite love story in Scripture can be found in the book of Hosea. And I want you to encourage you to turn there this morning. The book of Hosea is one of the 12 minor prophets. And if you've never spent time reading through the minor prophets, you are missing out on some amazing sections of Scripture. My, my favorite sections of scripture can be found in these last 12 books, an absolutely incredible read to hear stories of love, to hear stories of, of justice and of redemption, but also some pretty tragic stuff in, as well in that section of scripture. There's a book that I read recently, and if you, if you want to dive deeper into these last 12 books of the Old Testament, there's a book called The Prophets by a man named Abraham Heschel. He's actually a Jewish rabbi, and he read a book called The Prophets, and it's absolutely incredible. Because so often what we do, we, we read stories of Scripture, we remove the identity of the person with the story. Like We forget that these people were real people. He says of the, of the prophets in the Old Testament, they are some of the most disturbing people you've ever met. They had some radical lives. They lived radical lives. They did some radical things. They were some really crazy people. And he writes that you know sometimes while we just think, oh, they're just a, another person or they're just a messenger that God used them just to speak. But there's so much more than that. He writes this about the prophets. He says, It is common to characterize a prophet as a messenger of God, thus to differentiate them from the tellers of fortune, givers of oracles, seers, ecstatics. Such characterization expresses only one aspect of their consciousness. The prophet claims to be far more than just a messenger. He is a person who stands in the very presence of God, who stands in the counsel of the Lord, who is a participant, as it were, in the council of God." not a bearer of dispatches whose function is limited to being sent on errands. He is a counselor as well as a messenger. These prophets are amazing men of God. And just a fun story about Abraham Hessel, who wrote that. Abraham Hessel was a Jewish rabbi who just loved reading the Old Testament prophets. So much so that one person he met who, who heard him speak on the book of Amos fell in love with that story of justice and of redemption, became good friends with him. And that man was Martin Luther King, Jr., uh, he became a person who studied with Abraham Heschel and learned from him and used a lot of his teachings in the Civil Rights Movement. If you go back and remember, he, he used Amos 5 a lot in his messages. So much so that when they, when they marched to Birmingham, it was Abraham Heschel standing next to Martin Luther King Jr. So I encourage you, it's just a side note, just to read that book. If you want, I can show you what it looks like. But remember, these are real men who had real lives, who, had, who, who endured great hostility, who endured great opposition, who went through all kinds of extremes. And God used these men as messengers, yes, to proclaim the message of judgment, message of justice, the message of love, of mercy, of grace and truth. But sometimes he would go a little bit further and take these men of God to, and use their very life as an example for their message. Likewise, we see in the person of Hosea. But to understand this, you need to go back a little bit further, go back about a thousand years before Hosea ever said a word. God brings the people of God out of, out of Egypt, out of slavery after they've been for 400 years. These people have no identity. They don't know who they are. There's no, there's no covenant. There's nothing between God and these people. And in the wilderness, he comes to them and he, he dwells on the mountain. He dwells within their midst and he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he gives them the covenant. So this is what it means to be in relationship with me. And this is what it means to be in relationship with one another. The Ten Commandments ratified that, that very covenant the first few commandments you see are very much about our relationship with God and the rest of them about how we interact with one another but you turn a couple pages throughout the old testament you quickly see the people of God did not take very long to screw that up just a couple pages and it's already terrible they're already breaking their end of the covenant they're already being unfaithful but yet God is still being faithful so fast forward almost a thousand years you, you go through all the kings and all the different rulers and now we see a man named Hosea And he comes to the northern kingdom of Israel and Judah. And the people of Judah have been very idolatrous, very immoral, very sinful. And they were very rebellious towards their God. God's like, hey, you have been so unfaithful to me. I have been faithful time and time and time again, but you are still unfaithful. So he calls Hosea to be a prophet. Chapter 1, verse 1, he says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Bere, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, and Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. So he calls Hosea to be a prophet, but he's going to use him a little differently than the rest of the prophets. Look in verse 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go and marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. He calls Hosea to be a messenger, a counselor, a speaker on God's behalf. To come from the very presence of God, to, to go into Judah, to speak a message to the people. But his calling was so much deeper, he says, I want you to go marry a woman who is promiscuous. If you're reading the ESV, it probably says a woman of whoredom. I want you to go marry a woman who already is unfaithful and who will be unfaithful to you doesn't start off like a real love story. Hosea agrees. Hosea is obedient. We see in verse 3, So he married a woman named Gomer. Yes, that's her real name. She married Gomer, daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. So it all starts off great. They they get married. They have a child together. She bears a son, and we see the name in verse 4. The Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu, for the massacre at Jezreel, I'll put an end to the kingdom of Israel. And in that day, I'll break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Jezreel was a place where some pretty awful things happened prior to this moment. And God says, I'm going to bring judgment down on the house of Israel because of what happened at Jezreel. So name your child Jezreel. So we have Hosea, Gomer, the first child, something to be celebratory of. And then we get this child and God's like, I want you to name your child Jezreel because I'm going to punish and bring an end to Israel. What's your child named after? (laughs) Like, it's crazy. But pay real close attention to what happens next. See, verse 4 says, or verse 3 says, so she bore him a son. Verse 6, though, Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. So verse 3, she bore him a son. Verse 6, she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. There's really no indication that that child that she has next belongs to Hosea. He has promised that this woman was going to be unfaithful. He was promised that she'd be promiscuous and won't abhorred And she has another child. She has a child and that daughter of God says, call her La Ruhamah, which means not loved, or your translation may say No mercy. No mercy for I will no longer show love or mercy to Israel that I should at all forgive them. Wow. I want you to have a a wife who's going to be unfaithful to you. Your first child will be named Jezreel because I'm going to punish Israel. The next child will be no mercy because I have no more mercy on these people. They've been so unfaithful. Then he says, verse 7, yet I will show love for Judah, and I will save them not by bow or sword or battle or by horses or horsemen, but I, the Lord, their God, me will save them. It goes on again. Verse 8. After she had weaned la Ruhama, Gomer had another son. Again, not indicating whether it was Hosea's or not. The Lord said, call him Lo on me, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. God calls Hosea. I want you to be a prophet, but I'm going to use your marriage, your unfaithful wife and your three kids, just to show how unfaithful, how rebellious, how scandalous Israel has become. Talk about a terrifying call. This is what I want from you, Hosea. I'm gonna show Israel how messed up they are, how they've wandered away from me, how 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 they've abandoned the covenant. How I am no longer their God. I longer, no longer have mercy or love for them. Verse 10 keeps going. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand of the sea which cannot be measured or counted. And the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. It says, listen, even in the midst of all this, yet I have, no, I have no mercy on them, I have no love for them, but there will come a day where I do have hope for them. There is a day of promise, a day of hope, a restoration one day, but it is not right now. All this, the story is absolutely brutal to consider the heartbreak Hosea must have felt in all this. Sadly, the story just keeps on going. Much like Israel, who keeps wandering away, even after the rebuke, even after all the the words from God, they keep wandering away and keep chasing after all other things, looking for completion, looking for wholeness. So does Gomer. And before God commands Hosea to do something radical, he comes to him and says a message of hope and mercy for Israel. Chapter 2, verse 14, it's an absolutely beautiful passage. It says, Therefore, I am now going to allure her, meaning Israel, the people of God. I'm going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness. I'm going to speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Acor a door of hope. And there she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and you will no longer call me my master. God says, in that day, there's going to come a day where I'm going to take Israel away from this place. I'm going to take them out of this place where they've become comfortable, where they become complacent, where they become rebellious. I'm going to take them away. I'm going to lead them out into the wilderness, the very place that God spent with them, where he dwelt with them, and as he spoke to them and made a covenant with them. He said, I'm going to bring you all back to the place of your first love. And in that moment, I'm going to speak tenderly, tenderly to you. Imagine just someone speaking lovingly into your ear. That's what we see in here. I'm going to speak lovingly and tenderly to my bride. I'm going to restore her, give her hope, a future promise. So she'll recall the days of her youth when she came up out of Egypt, when she found me, when she discovered me, when she became my own. And in that day, he says, you will say, you're my husband. You're my God showing the promise that was to come. But to communicate this promise, to communicate this reality, God uses Hosea once again in chapter three. In chapter three, we find that Gomer has completely just left. Gomer's now wandering throughout the town, wandering throughout the city streets, looking for love, looking for satisfaction, completeness. And she's going to the places that you and I would never deem to go. We never venture down those areas. Chapter 3, verse 1, The Lord said to me, meaning Hosea, I want you to go show love to your wife again. Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to their other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. He says, hey, Hosea, your wife's gone. Your wife's gone. She's loving other men. She's finding love in other men. She's been unfaithful. She's an adulteress. Notice that God does not say, yeah, just move on. E-harmony, find another one. No, he says, I want you to go to her. I want you to pursue her, chase after her, and love her again. Verse two is absolutely just shocking to me. So I bought her Hosea bought Gomer for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. What does that mean? The imagery that we see here, every town has that city street that you never wander down, right? Every city has one of those places where kind of like the Lion King, the dark shadowy place that you you should never go. That's exactly where Hosea has to go to find his wife. And he finds her, on the auction block. Imagine this woman standing before this crowd of people who are longing for sex, longing for wholeness and completion. And she's there on that podium, longing to be made whole, longing to be loved, longing to be made complete and being willing to sell herself out for affection. And she looks out in the crowd and no longer does she see just a bunch of random men of the city, she sees her husband standing there he says, I will buy my wife. He purchases what already belongs to him. He purchases his wife. She's already his wife, but yet he, he purchases her and buys her. He says to her, You are to live with me for many days. You must not be a prostitute, or it says in ESV, you must not play the whore any longer and be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way towards you. He buys his wife. He redeems her with his 15 pieces of silver. He says, I will be your husband. You will be my wife. I will love you. You will love me. One, imagine the shame that Gomer's now experiencing. She sees her husband, the man who has been faithful from the beginning, loving her, pursuing her. And he was willing to go to the dark corners of the streets to find her. He says, you're mine and I am yours. Come be my wife once again. And the, the, imagine just the, the toil and the, 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 the difficult of the obedience of Hosea. As I said, he could have easily said, no God, I'm done with this. She's gone. Let me move on. Let me just raise my kid. Let me, just, let, me just, let me have my life. Let me continue being a messenger. But God's like, no, your message is part of your life. Your life is part of your message. So go after her. I'm chasing after Israel, so I want you to chase after your bride. As I said, it's a beautiful yet tragic story of love, a story of pursuit, yet a story of retreat. But God calling a man to love desperately and radically this wife who's been unfaithful to him. It's interesting to note, if you ever study scripture, I encourage you to start looking at what names mean. Like why do they have these names? And it's interesting to note that Gomer actually means complete. Gomer, this woman who longed to be made whole, she longed to be complete, was looking for satisfaction, wholeness, completion, in everything and everyone else, except for the one who faithfully loved her, her husband. And on the other hand, Hosea, we actually can translate the same Hebrew, Greek or Hebrew word to where we get the word Yeshua, which means salvation, or Savior, which is where we get the name Jesus. This amazing image of a woman who's longing for completion, and she sees salvation, a Savior, in her husband. One who would redeem her and purchase her and bring her home. It's a beautiful story. As I said, though, to me, I think it's the second best love story in all of Scripture and just in general the world. Because the more beautiful story takes place 750 years after this moment. He says a day is coming where the the hope is coming, a future is coming. And it comes 750 years later with a cry out of Bethlehem. With a child being born in a very dark time. And in that dark time, people are wandering all over this world looking for completion, looking for satisfaction, where God has been silent, where there's been no prophets for 400 years. They're like, God, we want to hear from you. We want to see you. Where are you? And they're left to their own device to figure out how to be made whole. And a child was born. A child was born when a time where Rome was oppressing the Jews of the time. Where Jewish leaders and religious leaders were oppressing the Jews at the time. God chose that time to send himself to pursue his bride and his love. Jesus... Notice the story; how it's so similar. He came to purchase what already belonged to him. First Corinthians chapter six, Paul writes, says, "We were bought with a price. What price were we bought with? We were bought with the price of the blood and the body and the life of Jesus. Even in our unfaithfulness, our unlawfulness, our..." idolatry, idolatry, all of it, God was still faithful. He was still faithful in all these things. And he bought not with blood, not with silver, not with barley, not with money. He bought with himself as he sent himself to die for you and for me. We were in darkness and he came to bring light. We had no mercy. He came to bring mercy. We had no love. He came to bring love. We had no future. He came and promised a future. We were just wandering around aimlessly with no identity and no purpose. And he came and says, I choose you. Of this beauty, Peter writes in First Peter chapter 3, which Becky read earlier, But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies or the wonder of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And Peter actually is referencing here Hosea. Once you were not a people. Remember the son, not my people. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, the child's other name was no mercy, but now you have received mercy. Like the people of God in the time of Hosea, the people of God here in when Peter's writing this letter, they had no mercy. When Jesus came, there was no sense of mercy. There was no sense of salvation. They just longed to figure out, where am I going to be made whole? How will I receive the Father? How will I come before the Father? I need somebody to do this for me. And Hosea is just a beautiful foreshadow of Jesus who would come and be the perfect salvation, the perfect Savior, the perfect Yeshua for the people of God. So now we are God's chosen. We now have mercy. We now have love. We now have a purpose. We now are called to proclaim his goodness, his majesty, his excellencies, the one who calls out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the best love story in Scripture. That's the best love story you've ever heard. Hallmark's got nothing on it. It's amazing. This love story of Jesus and his bride. It's a beautiful story. Do you know why it's even more beautiful? It's not just a story of Jesus. It's a story of you. It's a story of me. This is our love story of somebody pursuing us when we did not deserve it. So often when we read Scripture, we, we try to read ourselves into the story. How, who are we in the story? What character are we? Listen, Do when you read the story of Hosea, never, never convince yourself or deceive yourself that you're Hosea. This story is about an adulterous, immoral, idolatrous people. That's us. This story of Hosea and Gomer, we're Gomer. We are a people of whoredom, people who have prom- of promiscuity, people of sin. In that devastation, in that brokenness, God still says, I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to speak tenderly to you. I'm going to lure you out in the wilderness. I'm going to dwell with you once again. I'm going to give you hope. I'm going to give you a future. And it's going to come to the person of Jesus, who will be your perfect bridegroom, who will be the perfect pursuer. What better love story is there than that? And just like Gomer, we're trying to find completion, we're trying to find satisfaction, we're trying to find wholeness. How are we doing? How are we doing? Where are we searching for completion? Where are you searching for completion? Where am I searching for completion? Where are you looking for wholeness? Where are you looking for meaning? Is it in your relationships? You just keep bouncing around from one person to another, just saying, this one will make me whole. This one will make me complete. You're unsatisfied in your marriage because you feel like your spouse is not making you complete. Your spouse will never make you complete. You're not 50% a person. Don't put, the, don't put the, 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 the standard of Jesus on your spouse. Only Jesus has the ability and to, the power to make you new, to make you whole, to make you pure and complete. It's only in him can you find that. And I promise you, if that's true of your marriage... If you are both pursuing Jesus in the same manner that they only he can complete you, you will see an amazing and radical work in your marriage as you both begin to look less like yourselves and more like Jesus. And amazing things will happen. Maybe it's your status as a as a as a career man or whatever whatever it is, your job, whatever you find your identity in. Maybe that is what it is. Maybe it's just your identity, you're looking for meaning in your identity. know that there is no greater identity than being a child of God. There is nothing you can put over that. Husbands, be a child of God before you're a husband. Wives, be a child of God before you're a wife. Mothers, parents, mothers fathers, be a child of God before you place your entire identity on you being a parent. It's the most important thing about you. What about your sexuality? Is that where you're trying to find wholeness? Why do you always feel empty at the end of every search on the internet, at the end of every relationship, after every hookup, you just feel empty over and over again? Food, sin, you name it, fill in the blank. Where are you searching for completion? Only you know where you're looking. Only I know where I look. But you and I both know, if we're honest with one another, if we really look at the situation in all those pursuits, Solomon said it best in Ecclesiastes, all of it is vanity, meaning all of it is empty. All I see is emptiness. All I see is me longing for more, longing for something better. Listen, the better has already come, and it's Jesus. And he has desperately loved you. And we were never meant to be made complete by anything in this world. We were only only meant to be made complete and whole by the person of Jesus and the relationship that he offers for us. If you want completion, find it in the arms of Christ Jesus who died for you. So when I woke up this morning at 5.30 and I see this text saying, hey, I want you to preach for me and you can share something short or you can lead into communion. And knowing that it's communion, I just just felt like I was supposed to say this. And if it's for you, I hope it's for you. You are desperately loved. You are radically loved by God. And you may wander this world feeling unlovable. You may feel like you'd never find love by anybody else. You may feel like you don't feel loved by anybody but yourself. Or maybe you feel like it's hard to love yourself. God desperately and madly loves you. He desperately loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die for you. Every other world religion gets it wrong in this. See, every other world religion has this idea that our God or our universe or this identity or this entity is seated on a mountaintop. And that mankind is left to their own device to figure out, how must I come before this God? How do I come to him? How do I get to him? How do I get to this eternal resting spot in heaven? And we try to march up this hill with all of our religion, with all of our effort, with all of our duties. And we're like, I can't do it. Why is it I always fall short? I feel like I'm falling down the mountain over and over again. I still know what to do with my life. But yet, story of Jesus, the story of Hosea and Gomer is that our Savior, our Yeshua, Jesus has come down off that mountain to walk with us, to dwell with us, to live with us, to be with us so he can say, hey, I know you can't do it, but I can. So walk with me up this mountain. Walk into the presence of my Father. I'm not waiting for you to bring heaven, to bring you to heaven. I'm bringing heaven down to you, and it's in myself. So it's here. Heaven is here in Jesus. That's what happened on the night that that baby cried. Heaven invaded earth, and salvation was made available. But maybe quickly you say, You have no idea what I have done. Look at me. You have no idea what I've done. See how that works? But listen, I know exactly what God has done and it is so much bigger and so much grander and so much greater than anything that you could ever accomplish or ever mess up at. Even in my worst mistake, His love is still greater. Even in your worst mess up or your worst trial in this life, He is still so much better. His love is so much sweeter anything you'll ever taste or experience. He has gone to a great length to show you how much he loves you and me. He has shown us the fullness of his love. And we carry this burden of weight and sin in this world. And listen, even though we've accepted Christ, for those of us who have, we think sometimes our life will be perfect. It's not going to be perfect until we reach eternity you will still face sin. It might be actually more complicated. It may be more difficult as you have to throw off things that are comfortable, things that mean a lot to you. But you are not meant to carry that burden alone. Jesus has arms so much stronger than you. And he was willing to bear the sins of the world so that you and I would never have to. He was willing to break his body so our body would never have to be broken. But it's not just that. As I said earlier, part of the beauty of being in covenant with God is that not only are we in relationship with the majesty of God, he's called us to be in communion as he knitted together this body, the body of Christ, this faith family even here today. We've been brought together to be in communion with one another. That we've been brought together for this time and this purpose of sharing the load with one another, sharing the purpose of God, sharing the mission of God, sharing each other's burdens as we cry out to one another in sin, as we cry out with agony when we we lose loved ones. When we have family who are sick, we don't rely on our own strength. Our own strength will drive us to our knees. But we're called to be there for one another to hold each other up, to point each other to Jesus, to look more like Him. So let's stop looking upon every other thing in this world and let's fix our eyes on the beauty and the love of Jesus, who has shown us the fullness of His love when He died upon the cross. Also, that he could do that so he could dwell with us forever so he could be our God and we could be his people. We're going to go into a time of communion here in a second but as we do that we're going to sing one more song before communion. I want this time to be a time of reflection. You know this song real well. If you want to sing, stay and sing. If you want to stay seated and just pray and just meditate on the, the amazing truth of the promises and love of almighty God, do that. Too often, we just get so lost in everything else. We never get lost in the love of God. It should wreck us how much he loves us. It should not just be something that we're like, oh, cool, God, thanks. Oh my goodness, God, thank you for loving me. I am a screw up. This world sucks. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for coming for me. Thank you for restoring this world and making things new. So as we sing this song, I just pray you reflect and meditate on the beauty and the perfect love Jesus.
1: As As wounds which mar the chosen one bring many suns.
0: great and the deep, the love of Jesus poured out on the cross of Calvary so that we could enter into that presence, enter into that communion with him. What great love the Father has displayed that we might be called his children. I pray today that you are a child of God. And as we come to this table of communion, I I pray that this is just something more, not not just a wafer, I pray something more beautiful than that. As we reflect on the, the work of Jesus on the cross and we see this bread and it's representing the body that was broken, so ours would not have to be broken and beaten, and killed, so that we could have life with him. Would you eat this in remembrance of him? Likewise, with the cup, no matter what tradition you grew up in, whether it was ocean spray, crayon grape, or the sacramental wine, whatever it is, just know that it's representing the beauty and the purity of the blood of Jesus that poured so freely out of his body and it's cleansed the hearts of man. May this blood purify you as you drink this in remembrance of him. So the response is up to you because this is not just a story that we just put aside and we come back to you every now and then. Not every love story demands the response that this story does. That's why it's so great and so beautiful. The story of Jesus demands a response from us and whether it's us calling upon him as Lord or just being overwhelmed by his love. As a faith family here, we believe that this love that he has shown us has led us to be a people who do three things. You've heard us talk about this numerous times. You see it on our walls, on our Facebook posts. We believe that at first, it means that we're gonna love God. I pray that we love him with the same passion and the same faithfulness that he's loved upon us. We love him by our worship. When we come before him, we fall upon our face, whether in this room, at this altar, whether it's in your car, wherever it is that you worship, we fall before him and we worship him. We love him. We declare that he is our Lord. And when we declare that he is our Lord, we show the entire world, hey, we belong to Christ Jesus, so we enter the waters of baptism. That this is who we belong to. He is my God, and I am his people. If that's you, and you're like, I wanted to call upon him as Lord, if today is the first day you want to do that, the altar is open, there are deacons around the room, we would love to chat with you. If you want to go into the waters of baptism, let's make it happen. Let's show the world how much you love the one who loves you. But also, we believe that we are to love one another, that we love people. Hopefully when you walk through the doors here that you know you are loved. You're loved by this pastoral staff. We pray for you, we hurt for you, but it's not just us. We have an amazing group of people, leaders, deacons, ministry leaders who pray for you, who love you, who long to see you grow. The person sitting next to you, hopefully, they love you, and you love them. As I said, the covenant relationship of God is that we come into communion with him, but we come into communion with one another. I pray that you walked in here knowing that there is accountability for you. There is encouragement for you. There is an opportunity for you. You can serve. You can grow. You can mature, and you can be made like Christ, but we can only do it when we do it together. I pray that we are loving one another in such a way. And I pray that that love is not contained in this room. I pray that shows as we love more people, this love story, if it has truly changed our lives, if has truly changed my life, may we be so compelled to show this world how desperately and radically and dramatically Jesus has loved them. They're looking for answers, people. And they're looking in the wrong places. May we be a beacon of love, of hope, and grace to show, hey, this God has called us out of darkness. He has made us new. He has purchased us, and he can do the same thing for you. I pray that we are obedient as a faith family in our mission, not just in this valley, but to the very ends of the earth. This message demands a response. How will you respond this morning? If you wanna pray, I'll pray with you. I would encourage you, receive as somebody, if you're comfortable, put your arm around one another and just say how much you love one another. Pray for them. There are so many things that we have going on in our lives right now, and we need to respond to it by loving one another.